Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I love doing that. (laughs) Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's program of the Commonwealth Club. My name is Clara Jeffrey. I'm editor of Mother Jones, and I'm very pleased to be your moderator for tonight's program. Joining us today is Senator Jeff Merkley. Senator Merkley has served in the U.S. Senate since 2009, and he's the author of the new book, America is Better Than This, Trump's War Against Migrant Families. His book exposes the extreme mistreatment of families and children who are separated at our border, denied asylum, and held in detention centers across the United States. In a heartfelt call to action, the book advocates for the need for immediate reform of these policies that have generated a humanitarian crisis along our southern border. He's so committed to this cause that he's spending his August recess, although I'm told we shouldn't call it that, touring around the country talking about his book. We're very excited to have him here with us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome me in joining Senator Jeff Merkley to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. So, Senator Merkley, in 2018, you were really the first, uh, certainly, member of Congress to to really bring to light that children were being held in cages, that children were being separated from their families. Can you tell me a little bit about that initial trip to the border and what, how it came about and what you discovered? Uh, you bet. This came about because I was reading uh, articles, catching up on the news, and I was came across the uh, speech from here in California down on the border at a place called Friendship Park where Jeff Sessions had laid out his zero tolerance program. And I thought, zero tolerance. Well, an attorney general speaking about being tough on crime six months before the election, no surprise there. And as I read the article, though, I... It, sounded like they were planning to actually take children away from parents in a strategy of inflicting trauma to deter immigration. And I thought, no, there's no way any American government would ever employ the strategy of harming children as a political strategy. Uh, It just would never happen here, not a Republican administration, not a Democratic administration. Uh, and yet that's what it sounded like. And a member of my team, as I was saying, there's no way they're going to actually do this. A member of my team said, well, there's one way to find out. Uh, go down to the border. And I thought, well, I guess I should, should go because if it's happening, we need to see it and we need to call it out. And so that Sunday I, I flew down and I went first to the... Customs and Border Protection Processing Center. It goes by the name Ursula Street. It's there in McAllen, Texas. And um, so I go in. I see the ice-cold holding cells that are often talked about. Uh, Then I saw a room full of monitors that they do uh, remote interviews. Mm -hmm. And then there's a warehouse. And as I go into the warehouse, I see these large 30-foot square chain-link cages and they want to show me their first aid. I don't want to see your first aid station. I don't want to see your kitchen. What's going on with these cages? And that's where they were separating boys into one, girls into another, fathers, mothers. We stop in front of this uh, one cage, and the boys are lining up by height to get ready to get a, a meal. And the shortest one was in front, and he was just knee-high to a grasshopper, maybe four years old. And... I said, you took these kids away from their parents. And they said, well, not all of them. And I said, well, by that you mean there were some older kids who crossed the border by themselves? He said, yes, but the rest? And they said, yes, we took them away. I said, where do you do that? They said, well, when we come out of the interview room, that's where we separate them. And there were actually separations going on at other places in the the system. Uh, But I thought of it. I was just, uh, I was I was stunned. I was stunned. I, when I went outside and described it to the, the press, the press was stunned that this was happening. And uh, the Washington Post, when I described it, gave me uh, Pinocchios. Right. Because they said, I think, I think they just couldn't believe that what I was saying was true. And as it turned out, it was true. Uh, and everyone calls them cages because that's what they, they look like. And um, that wasn't the end of the day. Uh, because then uh, I heard from immigration advocates that about an hour away in Brownsville, that the separated boys were being stuffed into a former Walmart by the hundreds. And so we drove up there, uh, Ray, Ray Zaccaro, a uh, member of my team and myself, and 
And they had already told us in advance they wouldn't let us in, but I thought, I'd just knock on their door. <laughs> Why not? Uh, what are they going to say? Um, I'll, if they won't let me in, I'll invite the supervisor to come out and talk to me. Well, they were not happy I was there. And the, uh, the assistant supervisor said that the supervisor would come out. Uh, he didn't come out. I called back 10 minutes later. Uh, actually, what was going on is he called the police. And so he came out after the police car started arriving. And I thought for a moment, I thought, well, I've never actually been handcuffed and slammed to the ground, but <laughs> it might be the first time about right now. Um, and do you have like a special I'm a U.S. Senator ID? Is there, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I can't I, imagine <laughs> an average police officer would necessarily, you know, know who you are or what, what did they say when you said no, I'm they, a U.S. Senator and I, you know, kind of demand I, to see what's going on here? I did not hesitate to mention that I was a U.S. <laughs> senator. And, but they didn't, they didn't ask me for ID. They did ask me. And it's all, all we were, we had, some of the press had followed me uh, from uh, down at McAllen. And we were also Facebook living it. Uh, and uh, maybe the fact the cameras were there uh, helped out. Uh, but they were polite. They didn't ask me for Senate ID. They did ask for my name and my birth date. I thought I was, I don't know if that was the beginning of the booking process. But uh, in, in the end, um, they simply asked me to, to leave. And I just used all those opportunities as I was talking with the police to say, well, I'm here for this reason. Just kept repeating that what I've been hearing is all these boys by the hundreds are inside this building. And I don't think anybody knows about it. And the American people need to know what's going on. And I want to know what's going on. Had, had you put together yet that because I can see how in the first facility you might be shocked and appalled, but thinking, OK, they're dividing people up to process them somehow. But that's not yet as bad as then sending those children to, away from where their parents are in a nearby giant cage to another facility. And did, had you really put together what was happening, that they were sending kids all over the state and the country? I had because I'd asked a lot of questions at the processing center. And they had told me what they were doing. And I said, well, uh, you think you're going to be able to keep track of the parents, the children? And they said, yes, we're giving them all an A number. What's an A number? It's an alien number. It's a nine-digit number. And I was thinking in my head, how are the kids going to keep track of a nine-digit number for their, their parent? All they have to do is give us the A number. We'll find their parent. It's all in the common computer system. Uh, and I said, well, I, are you saying that that's the theory and the theory is good, but in practice it doesn't maybe work or it needs some, some kinks worked out of it? They, oh, no, no, works perfectly. And by the way, that is a lie that continued on and on and on. The director of Homeland Security, uh, Kirsten Nielsen, came to Congress, said, we have absolute ability, flash of a key, connect the kids to the parents. That lie became completely obvious when the judge ordered reunification at the end of June of 2018, so of, of last year. And they absolutely had no way to connect the kids they had parents. And here's why. Because when they took them away from the parents, they classified them as UACs, unaccompanied children, and put them in the computer as unaccompanied children. No record they'd come with a parent. Family, right? And no record for the parent they'd come with a child. So when you got back from this trip, you called Jeff Sessions. I did. I did a few weeks later. I don't know if it's true. It was somewhere, yes, I did. And, and were you still, did you still believe, well, they don't, really understand the implications of what they're doing. So, I mean, you had served with Jeff Sessions for a number of years. Yes. And I think I called him after my second trip two weeks later, which was on Father's Day. And I took a congressional delegation down. And because of the publicity, the press also got in uh, to see what was going on. And, and so it became uh, very clear. And I, I thought, I really need our attorney general who's pushing this policy to understand this is not some theoretical idea about somehow you're going to deter immigration. This is like you're hurting kids. And I'm, I just, again, I just didn't believe any U.S. administration would conclude that was a good idea. It turns out, by the way, this, the first mention of this idea from an administration official, 13 days after the administration was sworn in, after Trump was sworn in. The following month, John Kelly, at that point head of the Department of Homeland Security, spoke to the press about it because there had been a rumor and said, yes, we are considering doing this, separating kids to deter immigration. And the following month, 
they started a secret program, a pilot project in the San Diego sector. Then it all went underground. I think because the initial reaction, I mean, most of us missed it. I missed it at that point in 2017. There was so much going on with the new administration. I think they got an initial reaction. They were very nervous about how their mistreatment of kids would be perceived by the American public. So they, they went underground until the zero tolerance speech of May the, the following year. But when I talked to Jeff, I, I wanted to just say, hey, Jeff, you know, let's set the let's set the official talking points aside. This is actually produces enormous trauma for kids. And I just I'm I will tell I will go down there with you. I invited him to go down with me and and I'll we'll see it and you'll understand that this is a bad idea. And he said, oh, no, 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 we're helping the kids. And I'm like, how are you helping the kids? And he said, and these were the talking points of the administration, he said, by deterring families from leaving their homeland and coming to the U.S., we are saving the children from a difficult journey, and therefore we're really doing wonderful things for these children. That was the uh, official position. Do you believe Jeff Sessions is racist? Um. I would prefer to answer that in the context of President Trump. Do you you believe President Trump is a racist? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. If you track his comments about why can't we have more Norwegians, it's clearly about skin color. Uh, Cuccinelli on his team just said the words that are carved into the Statue of Liberty were only meant for Europeans. And you didn't hear President Trump saying, oh, he's fired, you know. I, can you imagine if, if someone working for President Obama had said that? They would be gone in a microsecond. Uh, it's a very racist strategy. Uh, there's all the other components. And, I mean, we have a president who campaigned on division. He campaigned on attacking, uh, well, women, African Americans, Haitian Americans, Hispanic Americans, Muslim Americans, Americans with handicaps, even veteran Americans. But when he came into office, he continued to pour fuel on the divisions, but he particularly came to find the easiest target is immigrants. Immigrants not from Europe, immigrants from south of the border. So what to make of the fact that folks like Sessions and Kelly and Nielsen are so uh, willing to carry out these uh, racist and cruel policies? How do you how do you describe the dynamic that allows people that um, uh, you know whatever you may have thought of them before to do something so despicable? You know it um, it's hard to get your hands around what has happened, but if you think through history, you will see that there are uh, leaders who realize that in our core humans lean towards tribalism, and that you can play on the differences and say whatever difficulties you have, they're to blame. And whatever difficulties you have, they're to blame. And it's a, it's a very um, unfortunate strategy, and it's one that I thought America had moved way past. But you see the slide with which I watch my Republican colleagues in the Senate who didn't speak up three months into the administration, or six months or nine months, and their base is listening to Fox News every day. And what is Fox News saying? Best president ever in the history of the planet. Uh, and so they're, they're seeing their, their base, their political base is seeing it from a very different viewpoint than I see it, see it from. And they're afraid to confront their base. And so they remain quiet. And they may tell you privately, as many of them have on one issue or another, I can't believe what's happening. I can't wait till we're done with this administration. But they're not speaking up publicly. Those who spoke up publicly, Jeff Flake, Bob Corker, they're gone. And I, I suppose you would say that that in, that's in part because they and their families are privileged from all of these policies, that it's never going to impact them personally. And the only real impact will be re-election or no fat lobbying job or slightly less fat lobbying job. That in terms of the senators? Yeah. Well, 
I don't, you know, senators have complicated family trees. Some of them are being impacted personally or their communities are being impacted. They're being impacted by the uh, changes in labor supply uh, or the meatpacking plant going out of business. Or, I mean, I, I don't want to say they're not impacted. Uh, do me- most, many of them live in a, a rich gated bubble? Yes, but not all, not all of them in every, every aspect. But in terms of their political life, they have chosen to be on the Trump train and they're not getting off. So immigrants are being held in camps that are often remote and run by private prison companies. Is that more perverse economics, like those are communities that welcome these facilities or just there's not much going on there? Or is it in part an attempt to keep these facilities away from people and protesters? Well, uh, let me talk about two influx facilities that some of you may have heard about. One is Tornillo that was down in the the desert in Texas, and the other is Homestead in in Florida. And uh, Tornillo uh, grew very, very quickly in the desert. It was run by a nonprofit, BCFS, that was specialist in refugee camps. And the uh, head of it wanted to make sure kids were not trapped in overflowing ice-cold cells in the in the in the processing centers and the administration just kept saying we're sending more people we're sending more kids we're we're not and they weren't taking any out and suddenly it was gone from initial plan of a few hundred kids uh to uh, 2300 uh and uh, there were 23 no there was up to 2800 when i was there in december of last year and the head of it was I'm I it's this is not going the direction I thought it was. I thought I was saving the kids uh from this these cramped horrific quarters that are at the initial check-in facilities and instead the kids are being warehoused here rather than put into sponsors homes. And he told me that 1300 of the kids in his uh camp already had full clearance to go to a sponsor, but the administration was sitting on their applications because they wanted to keep them imprisoned. Back to this inflict maximum trauma strategy. And so he decided that he was going to refuse to extend uh, past the next segment of the contract. And so he was working it from the inside. We held, uh, so on December 15th, I held a demonstration outside of members of Congress. Uh, Beto O'Rourke came and joined us. And we called on the kids to be released who had sponsors. And we called for the shutdown of Tornillo. And the following week, the kids were released. In fact, not just those 1,300, but another 2,700 kids who already had sponsors. The population went almost overnight from 15,000 kids to 11,000. And then the following month, they shut down Tornillo. The in the the BCFS refused to extend the contract, and other contractors refused to pick it up because of the public pressure. So for all the Americans who were complaining to their members of Congress about this refugee camp in the desert and the treatment of children, thank you for doing so. It made a big difference. So that's the good news. The bad news is the administration then enlarged a for-profit prison in Florida, Homestead, and set it up to hold 3,200 children. And they are being paid (coughs) $750 a day or more per child. And they have every incentive to keep kids locked up. Uh, And that is a perverse situation. It's even more corrupt than that. Because John Kelly, who became Secretary of Homeland Security and then Chief of Staff, was on the board of the for-profit company before he came into the administration. He came into the administration. He advocated for child separation, which enriched this corporation. He left the administration, was put back on the board at a very high uh, payment. And um, so that's just not okay. So we have to absolutely end any role of for-profits in in the state-licensed system, and we need to get rid of these non-state-licensed facilities like Tornillo or Homestead completely. Are the only sponsors that uh, children or other people could be released to family sponsors? We used to have a very different refugee sponsorship program, Um, but I believe today it's just family members, and is... Does that pose a problem for people who are afraid that their own immigration status will be called into question if they... So what the administration uh, did 
is they decided to shut down the sponsorship in homes. And they did it by saying, we're going to fingerprint every member of the family, and we're going to turn the information over to ICE. You want families not to come forward, just you tell them those two things. Right. Nobody really wants to be fingerprinted and turned over to ICE. <laughs> and especially in the Hispanic community where you may have extended family who may be here undocumented. And so that really plugged up the pipeline. And then when they were processed, they didn't complete and didn't release the kids. Now, there's no reason that they cannot take anyone here after vetting as a sponsor. And I've had people come up to me all over Oregon and all over the country saying, I would be happy to house several of these children. The administration will shred your application. They said, we are not taking any non-family members. And thus, it's another strategy to make it difficult for children to get into a home. I mean, kids, so think of it this way. If you are awaiting adjudication of your asylum status, why not have the children in a home and a school and a playground? That's where they belong. It doesn't mean they're going to win their asylum case. You have the burden of proof, and the burden of proof is difficult because how do you demonstrate credible fear of torture or bodily harm if you're returned? You have to put together a case that's difficult. So most people lose their cases and they're deported. But in between the time they arrive on our border and say, I'm a, I'm a refugee, I'm fleeing persecution, until it's adjudicated, we need to treat people as human beings, as, as, as understand, they could be our family fleeing persecution, as many of our ancestors uh, did. That's the argument I'm, I'm making. And I, and I think to your point, it's interesting. My family sponsored refugees uh, in, from Cambodia in our, following the Vietnam War. Um, but by not allowing non-family members to sponsor, it also further separates the American public from this cause. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, re I remember when churches sponsored and families sponsored, and that's being blocked by the administration. Um, now the Trump administration is trying to override the Flores decision, which says essentially that kids can't be held more than 20 days. They're saying, OK, well, now we're not going to separate them, but we'll just lock the whole family up until their asylum case is finally heard. Um, what kind of incarcer what kind of trauma does this sort of incarceration inflict on kids, even if they're with their parents? Yeah. So uh, uh, the Flores settlement, uh, Judge G, 1997, it was saying you have to treat kids humanely because kids were being mistreated in prison-like settings. And this put an end to it. It said, here are the standards for, for bedding and, and hygiene. The kids must be quickly moved within three days into a state-licensed facility and then moved to the least restrictive setting, meaning into a home as quickly as, as, as possible. And um, the administration doesn't like this uh, decision. Uh, because they want to lock up children in prison. So if we go back to child, I want to go back to child separation and just put this in context. Plan A was to traumatize children through child separation. When a judge in the end of June last year said you can't do that and you must reunify the parents and children, they went to plan B, which was to traumatize children through incarceration. We do have some family internment camps currently, three of them, but they're limited to the three days, in theory, or 20 days during a period of high influx. And that period is not well identified, so in general, 20 days. Uh, so, um, so the administration says, well, let's just lock them up for a long time. So uh, a group of us held parallel hearings in the U.S. Senate, a group of senators, to bring in child experts to answer the question you're, you're asking. And uh, imprisonment induces an uncertainty about life. You're being cut off from, from almost all your connections. You have no idea if you'll ever make a living. You're treated as a prisoner, which is a decisions are made for you. You will eat this. You will move here. You will do that. And uh, it is deeply damaging. Uh, to to individuals, uh, I we'd have to, in, when I hear the experts talk about how the brain gets rewired with the stress of incarceration and how that trauma lasts through extensive period, um, I'm just like uh, this is this is brutal. 
Uh, this is brutal. I went uh, to uh, Dili where women and their children were incarcerated. And because there was, there was a family that was trapped in limbo that had been there five months, so they hadn't been released after 20 days. And the mother, uh, I was alerted to this by an immigration advocate, so I met with the mother, and she just sobbed through about 45 minutes of conversation. Her daughter, 14 years old, wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping, was suicidal. Uh, the U.S. government had said, you have to go back to Honduras. And uh, when they were shipped to the airport, the daughter had a, a complete and total panic attack. And so they brought them back to the prison and put them in, in the internment camp, put them in isolation, solitary confinement. And um, what is their story? Their story is this. The mother had a beauty parlor, and when she ran out of money to make the extortion payments... The gang came to her house, put a pistol to her head, a pistol to her daughter's head, and molested her daughter. And molested is the word the mother used, but may well have been rape, gang rape of the daughter. And uh, the daughter feels 14 years old. She's sent back. She, it's like death. Uh, so um, they're trapped in there. Uh, she, mother tells me that in three days, that was on a Saturday, on Tuesday it was going to be her 15th birthday at Quinceanera. And um, quinceanera is a big deal in Latino culture. So I said to the prison administrators, hold a quinceanera party for this, for this girl. Show her that someone cares about her. And they said, we can't do that. We can't do anything special for any one child. And I said, we'll do it for every 15-year-old child, every 15-year-old girl. No, we can't do that because not everyone's Latino. And, you know, that'd be discriminating between cultures. And I said, hold a birthday party for every child on their birthday in this facility. Make it a policy. And they said, oh, well, that we can consider. And then they wrote me the next week saying, no, it's too much trouble. Can't do it. And it's like, it, that's a symbol to me of the dehumanizing nature of, of this. Um, I'm happy to report they are no longer locked. She and her daughter are no longer locked up. But the reason they're not locked up anymore is because several of us put a lot of attention on it. And she tried to, the daughter tried to commit suicide and hang herself uh, with a sheet. And, and then she was released. And now she's in school, and she's on the soccer team, and she's singing in a choir, and she's trying to put her life back together. You know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Quintana because we just ran a story today that was sort of the flip side of this, of a, a girl whose father was caught up in one of the workplace raids right before Quintana, and she just felt so guilty about going through with this really important ceremony when her father was locked up. Um, you know, when, when the Trump administration is raiding places, taking parents away and leaving their kids without anyone to pick them up from school or take them home. Again, you know, uh, my, my former colleague, Adam Soror, who's now at the Atlantic makes, he has made the statement that's become a sort of, saying for the Trump administration that the cruelty is the point. We're kind of all complicit in that, are we not? Well, it is our government with our money on our land that is doing this. Uh, on the last State of the Union in January, I invited uh, uh, a young girl to come with her mother. They'd been separated at the border, uh, and uh, it turned out it was her 12th birthday. So we held a birthday party for her. And uh, I asked her if she had something she'd like to say to the president, what would she say? And she said, I'd like to tell him to end this most cruel law. And that's how I have the prologue in the book is titled This Most Cruel Law, because I thought that captured, as you're stating now, the essence of what this is, is about. If some other country among developed countries, we heard they were trying to expand internment camps lock kids up indefinitely, rip them out of their parents' arms, inflict pain and suffering as a strategy to deter immigration, we would say, what happened? We would go to the UN Human Rights Commission. We would do sanctions. We would do resolutions. We would send delegations over and say, you're not welcome in the League of Developed Nations if you're behaving in this fashion. And it's our government doing this. And thus, we have to do everything we can at every moment now to, in, 
to expose it, to publicize it, to encourage uh, appealing to the courts. But we, I don't think it will end until we put President Trump out of office. I think there has to be a political solution to this next a year from November. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. You know, the, the, the Democratic candidates have been talking about a, a bunch of different um, immigration policy uh, tweaks, solutions. Is decriminalizing border crossing a good idea in your mind? Right now, if you cross, it, it can be counted as a felony, at least eventually if you reenter. I think the conversation became way too simplistic. Mm. In the law, there are two clauses that come right after each other. One says you can, uh, the, the government can use a criminal penalty, blah, blah, blah. The next sentence says you can use a civil penalty, blah, blah, blah. Um, in cases where somebody's crossing the border who is smuggling drugs, someone who is crossing the border who is trafficking women, uh, someone, et cetera, then the criminal, criminal clause in the law is appropriate. When there's simply the strategy is to escape persecution, uh, then I'm not sure any civil or penalty is appropriate because they're, they're, they're coming to ask for asylum. And many of those people who are crossing between the ports of entry, they have come to the port of entry. And this is another big... The president said, just come to the port of entry. So on that second trip I went on, on Father's Day, June 17th last year, and I took this congressional delegation, I took them out on the bridge at the crossing uh, there in McAllen, Reynosa Hidalgo Crossing. And uh, two weeks early, there were 50 people camped out on the bridge. They'd crossed the center line but hadn't been allowed through the doors of our, our, our facility. And they'd been 100-degree heat. They'd, some of them had been there for 10 days on that bridge. When I went back two weeks later, the people were gone, but we went out to the middle of the bridge, and what we saw were CBP, Customs and Border Protection Officers, three of them blocking anyone who did not have a passport or a visa from crossing. Now, under the Refugee Convention, if someone comes to the borderline and says, I'm fleeing persecution, we're supposed to give them safe harbor. We were not doing that. We were stiff-arming them and saying, you are stuck in Mexico. Sorry about that. This evolved within a few weeks, months later, to metering, where we say, go back into Mexico and get onto a list, and when we have space to interview you, we'll call you. Of course, it's very hard to reach people. It doesn't work very well. And people are stranded in dangerous circumstances without funds or friends or family. And if you're stuck in that condition, you go, well, if I can't get across the bridge, maybe I better go between the ports of entry and surrender myself to the CBP. So a lot of people who are surrendering to the CBP are doing it because we blockaded them at the port of entry. And to dramatize this, there was a photo in the New York Times a couple weeks ago of a father and daughter, Oscar and Valeria, who had come to the port of entry. They had been blockaded, sent back into Mexico. The family felt so vulnerable. The best thing to do is surrender. So they tried to swim the river. And the father and daughter, you've seen the photo, face down, arm in arm, drowned in the river because the Trump administration blockaded them at the board, right at the bridge. That day when I had the congressional delegation there, I asked them, why are you blockading people? Because I'm looking at the interview rooms, they're empty. We were over at the processing center and it was nearly empty. Oh, well, somewhere in the pipeline, they said, there, there's, there's you know, too much going on. So we're just, they'd received instructions from the administration to shut down that border. And um, I said, well, you've got a room here of 10 or 12 people. Are any of them folks who you've allowed across today? Yes, there's one family. Uh, so um, they introduced us to, uh, to Gabriella, and her, she introduced us to her baby daughter, less than two months old, Andrea. And I said, so the guards let you cross because you had a baby in your arms. She said, oh, no, three times I was sent back into Mexico. 
So I said, well, how did you get here? And she said, and her face lit up for a moment. You just saw this flash of light. And she said, the pedestrian bridge and a car bridge. And I saw the car bridge and saw people washing windows on the car bridge. I went and borrowed an extra squeegee. (laughs) I washed a window. I washed a window on a car closer to the U.S. And I crossed into the United States of America. She was treated as if she had crossed between ports of entry. She was not allowed across that bridge. Uh, And I must say, anyone who is that innovative and determined, uh, I think... uh, She's got a great future in the United States of America. (laughs) And I hope the best for baby Andrea. I hope we we hear great things from her someday. It seems also like many of these policies are clogging the very application and courts process so that it all drags out even longer, which sort of has, I mean, they seem very focused on this notion of deterrence, but has there really been any evidence to show that these policies have deterred? folks from making the journey? No, there's no, there's no evidence of this. When you think about uh, uh, Gabriella, uh, and in, in her case, uh, her family had a bank loan, and she was told that if you don't repay the bank loan, you'll be the person in the family who will be killed. Uh, and she was pregnant, and she said, I thought they wouldn't kill me while I was pregnant. I thought I was safe. So we hoped we'd be able to repay the loan. I got to eight months pregnant. We hadn't been able to repay, so I fled to save myself and my child. She gave birth along the way, so it took a three-month journey, took two more months with her brand-new baby in arms, walking to the United States, uh, and uh, she would have left. She didn't know anything about the border rules. Uh, Jacqueline and her mother, Albertina, who came to the State of the Union, they didn't know anything about the borders, and even if they'd known, they would have left because to stay was to face a horrific outcome. And um, I asked Gabriella, I said, after you left, was your family able to repay the loan? She said, no. And I said, what happened? She said, they killed my uncle because I wasn't there. You know, I mean, this this was not some, you know, fiction in terms of what would happen. Realize this, too. This situation in Central America, the money that the gangs have comes from selling drugs in the United States. The guns they have come from the United States. It's not as if this happened on its own. We're tied in to the drug cartels and gangs taking over the streets of, the, of those countries. And we've done very little to help the institutions of justice or social welfare survive the power of the gangs. They have two big tools. One is we, they have money to bribe people with. and the other hand, they have a gun to kill people with. That's pretty persuasive when they say, we're not going to kill you, we're going to kill your family member. We're not going to kill your family member. We're going to gang rape your daughter. It's pretty powerful. You have to have strong institutions. And if we don't help the institutions recover, people are going to keep fleeing. And there's other complicating factors. They, they have a significant three years of drought. It's affected the coffee. It's affected the corn. Uh, they have widespread malnutrition and stunting. There's an undersupply of jobs. Uh, so there's a number of factors that are adding on top of the, the cartel action. Uh, that means in, unless we help those countries strengthen internally, uh, people will keep coming in, in, in surges. Uh, so speaking of the need for stronger institutions, could we talk for a minute about the dysfunctional body that is the U.S. Senate? Um, you know, it seems that because it's so dysfunctional, at the moment it seems hard to get some Democrats who are best positioned to win Senate races to run. I mean, I'm thinking Beto, maybe Castro, Steve Bullock, Stacey Abrams. These are all people that uh, maybe not definitively, but have signaled that they're not so much interested in a, in a Senate race. Is that a fair assessment of the dilemma that's facing people now that they just don't want to go to an institution where they can't get stuff done? This is absolutely fair. Uh, the Senate I, I first saw when I was an intern for Senator Hatfield, it was a simple majority. You know, we had in the Constitutional Congress, we had a supermajority. It paralyzed it. Uh, the founders said, we're not going to make that mistake again. Passing laws is simple majority. And uh, the first time that, that uh, a filibuster essentially interrupted policy was World War I when when uh, a group of senators said they wanted to talk to death a bill 
um, that would have armed civilian ships. So there's a long time between our founding of the country and World War One. And then there was a long time before the next filibuster. I mean, it was a very rare thing. It was understood. Filibuster the, means piracy. It's a Dutch word for piracy. And a freebooter. It's a translation of freebooter, piracy. And uh, uh, it was understood it was an abuse of the institution. And so it happened very, very rarely because of the culture. But now it has become, in the last 20 years, it's evolved to a, uh, an absolute daily event. So now we have a supermajority Senate. Uh, and that is destroying the Senate. And by the way, the Republicans had two top priorities. One was tax breaks for the rich and powerful, and the other was the Supreme Court. In both cases, they changed the rules to a simple majority by nuclear option. And so when Mitch McConnell writes in the New York Times a couple of days ago, well, we would never... We would never do something like this. We believe in the integrity of the Senate and the Senate's designed as a supermajority body. There's almost not a true thing in that entire op-ed, historically, or so, in terms of the behavior of, of the Republican majority. So I take it that were the Democrats to, to end the cynical reign of Mitch McConnell and take the Senate, you would be in favor of getting rid of the filibuster? I am in favor of it. Uh, the, I can tell you that um, not many senators saw the Senate when it functioned. They almost have come to believe on both sides of the aisle that this is somehow the cooling saucer means filibuster. No, that is not historically true. Cooling saucer does not mean deep freeze. That was cooling saucer is a proverbial expression that apparently Washington never said, but everybody thinks he said it. Right. And uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, essentially. The things that I'm fighting for, health care, housing, education, living wage jobs, the Equality Act, taking on carbon pollution, those require a supermajority. And you know what? Mitch McConnell's strategy is to say, no, let's show that pres the Democrats can't get anything done, and then people will be cynical and angry, and they'll vote for us. And it worked. And it worked. And um, let me tell you, I think the most important thing that we need to do uh, is to pass the For the People Act, which says it takes on gerrymandering and voter suppression and dark money, which are totally corrupting our government. We have government by and for the powerful, not by and for the people. Uh, and the Supreme Court's played a big role in this. Uh, Jefferson said you need to have distributed power to have bills or laws that reflect the will of the people. The Citizens United decision that allows mega billionaires to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, that is a concentration of power. And the Supreme Court said, well, I'm sorry, we're throwing up our hands. We can't do anything about extreme partisan gerrymandering. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania figured it out. But the Supreme Court of the U.S., it basically has given it the green light. The Supreme Court of the U.S. said, oh, we'll just gut the Voting Rights Act even though it had extensive bipartisan support, and now we have huge amount of voter suppression intimidation tactics directed at the poor, minority communities, Native American communities, and college campuses. Uh, so um, uh, we're, we're in trouble when the Supreme Court is essentially multiple, three key ways undermining the vision our country was founded on. So this brings up a critique that you hear um, often from the kind of further left wing of the Democratic Party that, that be it Biden or Feinstein, that they kind of fan the embers of this dream that was bipartisanship and sort of the, the, the that they're as, a, you know, as a, in line with that, um, get rolled, basically. Um, that they're hoping for a comedy that no longer exists. Do you think that's fair? Well, I do think that's fair. Uh, you have, uh, going back to when I, so I saw the Senate in the 70s when I was an intern. I saw it in the 80s when I worked for Congress. And uh, essentially, you had no filibuster, so therefore people knew a bill was going to pass, so they said, let's work together. I want to get some of my stuff in there and some of your stuff, and we can find the area of compromise. So it, the truth is that a simple majority encourages cooperation because people know the bill's going to pass. Now, there's a myth, a deep myth, that somehow a supermajority encourages cooperation because you have to get 60 votes. So you have to work with the other side. 
That is simply not the the way the dynamics of the Senate work. The way it works is when the minority has the power to obstruct the majority, they say, well, let's show we're relevant and let's show the majority is incompetent and block them. Mm -hmm. And so the supermajority actually works to disrupt cooperation. And especially this has been taken to a fine art by Mitch McConnell. When he was, became majority leader, he said that my number one goal is to present, prevent uh, Obama from being reelected. Re uh, so in 2009, when I was elected to the Senate, I was in four months and I got hold of a memo by Frank Luntz. And Frank Luntz is a message master for the Republican Party. And it said, no matter what policy is produced by Democrats on health care to make our health care system work better, we will call it a government takeover. And it was like, not because of the government takeover, but because that was what they had focus grouped and found was the most effective way to rally people against it. And I went to the floor of the Senate and I said, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is wrong. This is terrible because saying we are willing to sacrifice an improved health care system simply because we want to exercise political paralysis and undermine a, a new president. And but even so, what, what happened and quick, uh, Obama adopted the Republican plan, the Romney plan of a marketplace for private policies. The Republicans still called it a government takeover. And because her messaging was consistent, it actually worked pretty well. But that's so I, I hope I'm able to convey and I'm trying to convey this to my own fellow senators as well. This idea that somehow if the Senate, the Senate now in supermajority mode is going to work together with Mitch McConnell as a minority leader or anyone else, minority, it's not going to happen. And so we've, we've got to rectify and repair and restore the U.S. Senate. Could Chuck Schumer have done more to fight Trump's judicial nominees or at least slow his role? You hear that criticism a lot, and I, it's sort of hard to tell if that's just anxiety that it's happening uh, or if that's a true criticism. Not really, no. And here's what, here's what happened. The, uh, you have, if you, uh, if you require a cloture vote uh, on a judge, then it creates an intervening day plus 30 hours. Now, the intervening days can be done for multiple nominations simultaneously, so it's really the 30 hours. So uh, Mitch McConnell uh, asked for a ruling of the chair. Does it take 30 hours? And the chair said yes. And so he then challenged the ruling of the chair and overturned it. Um, and the way he framed the question was, doesn't it really take two hours, not 30 hours? So when he overturned it, it became two hours. So essentially, uh, it's a simple majority. It's two hours. And they can roll through every nomination they want. And uh, sometimes you'll see four nominations done in the afternoon. Well, there's eight hours in a day. I mean, it, it, there's, there, it, the short answer is not really. No, there's no way to, to stop the court packing. Mm. You know, it's a trope that a new president usually only gets one or maybe two big policy, policy pushes per term. What would you pick as the things the Democrats w should take up first? Uh, Health care, climate, campaign finance? The very first thing has to be the For the People Act. Tom Udall and I have led that in the Senate. We have all 47 senators on it. But if we aren't willing to do it by simple majority, it will not happen. Mitch McConnell called in his colleagues, his caucus, and lectured them and said, you may not co-sponsor this bill. Now, what does this bill do? It, it protects the integrity of the election process in the United States of America. And if we don't do that, we are not going to succeed on anything else. I have a very specific Oregon question. Um, why has Portland become the sort of ground zero for the battles between the Proud Boys and other white supremacy groups and Antifa and some sort of you know, other anti-fascist groups? Well, I don't consider myself to, to really um, be the person who has a, a, the biggest understanding of this. But my impression is because of Portland's reputation as a progressive city 
And because the, that dynamic goes back to when George Bush came and he wasn't really welcomed and so forth, the Proud Boys chose Portland as a place to, to go and create trouble. And uh, when they come to create trouble, this other group has formed and said, we are, we are going to show them we don't want them here. And that leads to potential for conflict. I'm very pleased that the, when they came a, a week ago, um, two weeks ago, uh, that a lot of effort went into keeping them separated. We did not have a riot, uh, and that was a big step forward. I really like the idea of having everybody pitch into a fundraiser in which you basically count how many steps they're taking in their march, the Proud Boys march, and for every step or every person they have or how many blacks, <laughs> you raise money. And so then you go out and you cheer them on and say, thank you for raising money for this progressive cause. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I heard about this uh, in Germany. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. and it really, it really, it was a, a Nazi group uh -huh. that was marching, and it really ended it because they they were raising money for progressive cause, and everybody just went out and cheered them on, you know, raised. Oh, oh, it's very interesting trying to find to you ways. Know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the reasons I asked that is because uh, you know Oregon has a, a fairly troubling past when it comes to race relations. It was. Uh, conceived of as, a, as an all-white state and territory and was slow to welcome uh, various things like the 14th and 15th Amendment. Um, and I ask because this this is obviously a, a problem that's gripping the rest of the country, um, but how do we fight this tide of white, rising white supremacy? You're, you're right about the Oregon history and the Oregon Territory. It was a whites-only territory. It had a black exclusionary rule. Uh, Oregon had uh, some horrific laws. Uh, it also had the largest Ku Klux Klan in the nation. And people just generally uh, don't, don't know that. Uh, the, um, uh, I, but Oregon's come a long ways. Can I just defend my <laughs> home state? <laughs> I'd say that history is way behind us. Very welcoming state, uh, and uh, not that we don't have some rural urban divisions, and not that we don't have some latent racism, but I think it's like this. When you have any leader in America who tries to denigrate a group, then all the rest of us, other leaders and members of the public, need to reach out to that group and say, we stand with you. So I went and held events with the Muslim community, for example, when the Muslim community was attacked, uh, and uh, with the Jewish community when the Jewish community was, was attacked, and so forth. And uh, I, I just think if we all do that in our individual actions, either as leaders or just as citizens, we will help repair some of the damage that is being inflicted from above. But then we have to get those leaders who are driving that affliction they have to be gone. What do you think is the message that um, Trump would be most vulnerable to? Like, what, it, what, it, what, is, what is his Achilles heel? What should the Democrats be campaigning on? Mm. Well, um, there, there are many theories <laughs> about this. Um, the, um, at one level, I think the nation is getting exhausted Mm -hmm. by his um, ups and downs, exhausted by his inculcation of, of hatred, uh, exhausted by the failure to address the fundamentals of what Americans are concerned about. When I mention the th things that I'm fighting on, on health care, housing, education, good-paying jobs, he's done nothing on these, and in some cases he's directly sabotaged them, like on, on health care. Um, I mean, I couldn't believe it, uh, when he proceeded to push to eliminate a health care bill that would have resulted in 30 million people losing health care. I mean, whatever difference between the Democratic candidates over here, uh, Trump is way over over here. And in my rural part of my state, uh, the eastern side, it is the congressional district that had more help from the health care law than any other district in the country. And it's the most Republican area. 
And I go out there and people say, thank you for fighting uh, for our hospitals and our clinics. We've doubled the size of our clinic. Now we have people that help with mental health, and now we have people who are helping with drug addiction, and these are some of the best-paid jobs in our community, and make sure you, you, you preserve the expansion of Medicaid. And so I think there's, there's ways to connect across the, the, the country. I came out of high school in 1974, and my parents went through a great leap forward. I'm a blue-collar kid from a little tiny timber town. Uh, my folks grew up with uh, my mother particularly so poor that at, at one point, according to family legend, her, her mother was living in a, in a boxcar and lost her three, first three kids to the county before she married my grandfather and had four more children. And... Um, uh, it, they what they described their evolution. They couldn't believe that they could, on a single mechanics. My dad was a uh, union mechanic. Could buy a house and a car, go camping on vacation, have a small pension, save money for their kids to go to college. And I became the first in the family history to go to college. And I thought, think about what's going to happen in our lifetimes. I mean, our parents went from here to here. We're going to go from here to there. And instead, we've had four decades of my working life in which incomes have been flat or declining for working Americans, while the vast wealth of America has piled up with just a few people. And here's the challenge. The more wealth is piled up among a very few, the more ways that wealth can be deployed to maintain the inequality of income and wealth. And you get stuck there. And I'm, a, I'm worried if we do not make a strong pivot very soon, then the path is paved for the future in which what we've seen for the last four decades will go on into the, into the future. We will, we will not be able to pivot back to an economy that uh, helps lift up all people. You were the, f the first senator to endorse Bernie Sanders in 2016. Um, I'm wondering if you've decided who you will endorse or when you will endorse or where you stand right now on that. Well, just a little correction. Uh, I was the first and only. only? Okay, I was... <laughs> <coughs> Can Bernie and, endorse himself? I mean, <laughs> and I was going to say, unless you count, yeah. unless you count Bernie, in which case, uh, full fiftieth of the Senate <laughs> endorsed his campaign. Uh, the I don't plan to endorse for a very long time. I, I celebrate so many being up there. As you may know, I considered running. I spent a lot of time exploring it. I reached a conclusion that I didn't have the network or the or the the money to be able to to do a major bid, and I'd be one of the two dozen people on the outside praying for a magical moment. Mm. And maybe that would have happened if I'd been on the debate stage. Mm. Uh, maybe America would have looked up there and said, well, we're not sure, but well, what about that guy? And that's, that's what everyone was thinking on those debate stages. And, um, but in Oregon, I couldn't be on the ballot for both, and I didn't want to do what Marco Rubio did, campaign for the presidency and then pivot to a different race, at least not as a, a plan. And, and, so, and I also felt no matter who's in the Oval Office, if we do not fix the Senate, then our country's in total trouble. Because whether Mitch McConnell is the majority leader or the minority leader, he will completely continue his strategy of obstruction. When he started it, I thought it wouldn't work and the, and the American people would reject it, and they didn't, and he gained power, and he's used that power. He has, he has done deep damage to the court. He stole a Supreme Court seat. It's his proudest moment in his, in his life. I did a 15 and a half hour uh, speech to protest. Technically, it wasn't a filibuster because at the, the moment he put the nomination on the floor, the Supreme Court nomination, at that very moment, he filed for cloture, which meant it already pre-scheduled the vote. So you couldn't, you know, there was no actual way to delay the vote. I just wanted to stand up there and say that, look, this is an enormous mistake for America. Once you do this, you undermine the integrity of the court. So come together. There were several compromise ideas laid out. Come together, majority leader, minority leader, figure it out. Because if this day passes and this uh, Neil Gorsuch is confirmed, uh, the credibility of the court as a fair, fair body is deeply damaged, and there's no right answer in the future. What's the right answer in the future? Is the right answer in the future for the Democrats to steal a seat back? Well, then you just have warfare. 
But if they don't steal a seat back, they don't balance out the first crime. I mean, there's no right answer. So I said, don't do this. And I, you can repeat that a lot in 15 hours and 30 minutes. <laughs> um, and my team had compiled all these articles. And, you know, I started at 6 p.m. in the evening, so I'd already been up all day. So it was, um, I, I, I must say, not an exercise I plan to repeat. <laughs> I have so many inappropriate questions about how one does that. But, um... <laughs> Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you didn't you do not want... drink for 24 hours <laughs> at a time. Uh, you mentioned that you you didn't want to be one of, you know, two dozen people up there without a, too much hope to actually be the nominee. Kirsten Gillibrand dropped out today. Who else should drop out now? Well, I'm not encouraging <laughs> anyone to drop out. Uh, I mean, what happens? It's it's um, what you find is that, one, a bunch of people won't qualify for the second debate, uh, so people kind of forget they're, they're running. A number of them have already dropped out, Seth Moulton and, and so forth. Others are just not raising any money at all, and it's like, okay, well, it's kind of, I'm starting to feel a little pathetic, uh, like I'm officially campaigning, but nobody's paying attention. I have events and nobody shows up. Nobody wants to host my, my living room uh, discussion. And so it will happen in the natural course. And so I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm not encouraging everyone, anyone to move out. But back to your other point, though, uh, I, there are people I would love to run for the Senate. Uh, Hickenlooper has decided to run. Uh, there are 11 people in that primary. I don't know if he'll clear the field or not. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, sometimes people run who were not state were not known to the national audience, who are actually fabulous candidates. When I ran against an established Republican that nobody thought could be beaten, nobody knew who I was. But you have a year and a half to visit every community and make your case and build your excited volunteers. And so I don't know who the, the, the best uh, candidate is, but I'll tell you this, I'd, there are certainly uh, cases uh, where I would love to see them in, in the race in, in Georgia and Montana, as you mentioned. So I have several questions from the audience that basically come down to to this sentiment, and and this will be my sort of last question to you. Are things as bad today as they were in 2016, 2017? Are they getting better or are they getting worse? Who has that question? About, <laughs> literally about four people. It's getting worse. Yeah. Our president is unstable. I mean, the G7 was just held, and you might as well called it the G6, because six nations are together on trade and not the U.S. On global warming, or climate chaos as I like to call it, not the U.S. On Russia, and not the U.S. On China, and not the U.S., on Iran and not the U.S. And then the French president, apparently with virtually no discussion with Americans, brings in the Iranian foreign minister in the middle. And surprise, (laughs) he's going to talk to me, but not you. I mean, it was it was a I think a symbolic moment in which you realize U.S. influence in the developed world has dropped to nothing. And and that lack of soft power. Uh, The world needs American leadership. Uh, On the climate issue, for example, I've been doing an exercise in every forum I've been in, and so I'm going to subject you all to it in these final moments. Just bear with me, if you will. Play along. I'm going to ask you to breathe in and hold your breath for three seconds and exhale together, and I'll explain why. Okay, ready? Breathe in. Exhale. That air in your lungs at that moment, very different from the air when I was born, it has 33% more carbon in it. That is an extraordinary, shocking change in a single lifetime, and it's doing all kinds of damage across the planet. And we need American leadership not only to change in America a quick transition from fossil fuels to non-carbon renewables, but to lead the world, to say to Trudeau, you say you're a climate champion, you can't triple the pipeline to the tar sands. (laughs) To say to Japan, you say you're going to meet Paris, how will you do that if you build an energy infrastructure based on liquefied natural gas? Germany, you say it's too difficult to put up transmission lines, so you're building Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia. 
Australia, your coral reefs are dying, your outback is burning, and you're doubling down on coal. You make the effort, Australia. We will make the effort at the same time. The world needs American leadership, and we have absolutely no influence at this point. Uh, so uh, I guess I want to encourage all of you to think about how you can use your own time and energy to help put America back on track. On this issue that we have about the treatment of children, Lady Liberty's torch has been snuffed out by this administration. We need to share that with our friends. We need to do it with our book groups. We need to uh, recognize that that's eating at the soul of our nation. And we need to recognize that this is a pretty dark, heavy time for our country. But we have an opportunity to change that. An opportunity in our daily conversations, an opportunity with our resources, which I would encourage you to consider donating to immigration groups that are doing great work. Alotro Lado, that's escorting kids across the border. Uh, IRAP, the uh, International Refugee Assistance Project in New York. Refugees International, that is lobbying in Washington, D.C. The respite centers in each town, like Annunciation House in El Paso, that is assisting refugees. Uh, but let's also use our, our weight and time and energy to put America back on track in November 2020. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Merkley, for joining us this evening. Folks, he'll be uh, available to sign books, um, to sign a copy of his books, America is Better Than This, Trump's War Against Migrant Families. And uh, I'm Clara Jeffrey. Thanks for coming out to the Commonwealth Club, and we're adjourned. And where is the book signing? It's right out there. Over there. Yeah. Okay. Thank you all.